Bible Fellowship. We're very glad to have you here for this morning worship service. And uh, we had the shelter in the time of storm. Seemed like we had the storms. Good to be reminded we have the shelter too. Matthew chapter 19. So let's find uh, that place in God's Word. While you're finding that, if you uh, closed your Bible and want to get back to that place, I do want to say thank you. I had meant to say something last Sunday evening at least to ask for prayer this week on that tooth extraction, and I think I forgot. Um, I had said something to the elders just in case somebody needed to have something in their back pocket because I you know, wasn't totally sure how all that was going to go. But the Lord blessed in that. I, I, for those of you who might have known about that, I thank you for your prayers. And I'm really very glad to have been able to be here and in decent shape to be able to speak on Wednesday evening. Now I'll ask you, I will remember to ask you this week because I have a procedure on Thursday I uh, got to, long story short, I got to my regular yearly ophthalmologist appointment week before last, and he found a little something he wasn't sure about, so he sent me over to a place in State College, a retina specialist, and they discovered what they called a microaneurysm in my left eye. And long story short, they do like a little, you know, with a laser to take care of that. And uh, the, the thing about it is that wouldn't normally, I mean, you know, uh, anything that they're going to do to you, you want to pray. But you hear about these things all the time, and I talked to my regular doctor about it on Friday, and he said, that's a good procedure. He said, I think you're doing the right thing there, but I have to be, that's at 1045 Thursday morning, and I have to be along the Pennsylvania-New York border up in Elkland, if anybody knows Elkland, um, for a 7 o'clock graduation ceremony that night that I'm speaking at. So, um, <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm, I'm asking the doctor, he said, if, if you don't take this Thursday appointment, I don't have anything till August. Well, yeah, sorry, I didn't really want to wait till August. And I said, well, can I drive afterwards? Yeah, you can drive afterwards. He said, some people get a little blurriness, but you only have the one eye. I said, Great. I'll be like Patch the Pirate driving up to New York. But anyway, um, <laughs> pray that God will bless in that and it'll all be work out and, uh, Things worked out this week, so I trust they'll work out next week too. Hey, let me direct your attention then to one verse that is in our text today, the verse we want to concentrate on, and that's verse number 27. So that's where we find the question that we're interested in here this morning. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Let's unite our hearts. We're going to pray, and then we'll look into God's Word today. And Father, we're grateful for your loving kindness and your watch care through this past week. Lord, whatever was a part of our lives in the past week, we can look back and see how you have walked with us and you have uh, assured us each day of your presence and uh, given us strength from your Word, given us guidance for our days and uh, watched over our lives. And thank you for those things, Lord. We accept every one of them, acknowledging that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Thank you for your consistency. And I pray, Father, that you would be with us even now. We need you now just as much as we need you when we have some procedure or some other request that we're facing. Because we know, Lord, that we can't really accomplish any spiritual good. We can't work in hearts. Uh, the Word won't be open to us apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we think of the prayer of the psalmist, Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. And truly, that's our desire now, that our ears, our eyes, and our hearts might be opened. I pray also, Lord, that you will loose my tongue, free me from the infirmities of the flesh, give me a, a fresh sense of your presence and a cleansing from sin so that I can be a mouthpiece, I can be a vessel, I can be someone that you will use here today on behalf of the dear uh, people of God who are gathered 
uh, in this worship service now. So watch over each one of us. You know who we are. You know what our needs are. And Father, we just uh, look to you and trust you for that. May, may, may no one of us go away today without some sense of your presence and some sense of spiritual ministry taking place uh, in our hearts and lives. And we do also think of the uh, children uh, back in the uh, junior church time and any of the other opportunities back there, nursery, whatever it may be. Uh, watch over and bless the folks there and those who are under their care and open every heart to your word and magnify your son, Jesus Christ, in every life. For we pray these things now in, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, with the Memorial Day weekend behind us now, we're in a position to move back to our regular Sunday morning series. They asked him this. Remember, we're looking now at those questions that people asked Jesus. The disciples asked a lot of questions. We also see that Jesus' opponents asked him different questions, and people that Jesus met in all walks of life asked him questions. I find that Matthew chapter 19 is rather intriguing because you have at least three. We're, we're going to look at the third one today. Back up in verse 3, notice there, that was the first one we looked at this one. This is a question asked by Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, and uh, the question was really, what about divorce? So we have that there. They, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And we'll go back over that ground. But uh, then also, then we had verse number 16. So if you look there, here was a question um, that was asked, uh, just again, someone that Jesus met in his, the course of his ministry. Not someone who fell into the other two categories, but the person that we generally uh, will describe as the rich young ruler. And his question here in verse 16 uh, good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And that message was, what good things shall I do? Now, if we discount, and I think it's appropriate to do that because the disciples ask a follow-up question um, in this uh, story that we looked at last week, the, or two weeks ago, the main question was the one I just pointed out. And they do ask that follow-up question, who then can be saved? But we sort of looked at that in connection with that story. So it's sort of like a press conference. You ever notice that? Um, this uh, president will call on someone for a question, and then they, they want to ask a follow-up question as well. And that's kind of what you have here. You have the rich young ruler. He asks a question. The disciples have a follow-up question as they listen into this. Uh, their curiosity is piqued with regards to certain things. And so they, they have a follow-up question. But now the real question comes. And that's verse 27. And it, it does. It comes right out of what we've already been looking at. And I'll try to point that out just a little bit more here in a second. But Peter says, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. So do you see how this is coming out of what we have before? Because although we didn't go back and read all of those verses... The story of the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing shall I do? And Jesus goes through some of the commandments. And then he says, look at verse 20, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And notice the Lord's answer, because this figures right into what Peter is going to ask. The Lord's answer is, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So if you were to distill that down in the first part, you would be able to come up with the exact two words that Peter uses, forsake and follow. And what we described there when we looked at that is, here's, here's a young man, and he's got an idol on the throne of his heart, these riches, 
And he's going to need to forsake that idol, really. He's going to need to determine that he needs the Lord in his life more than he needs those riches and that the Lord's more important. The needs of his spirit, the needs of his soul are more important. And, and so forsake would be a way to summarize that. That's certainly what G, uh, Peter gets out of Jesus' words because when he reflects back on this, now you have to envision the disciples, um, they're just like you and me. I mean, they're watching this. They're listening to this. They already had the follow-up question. Their curiosity was, well, when you made this comment about how hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that, as I pointed out last time we were looking at this, they, they sort of interpreted riches, if you were doing well, as a symbol of God's blessing and favor, so that really kind of blew them away. And they had that follow-up question, and they were listening with uh, interest to what was going on in this interchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Well, now, as I say, the main question comes, and Peter gets it. I mean, he's been listening carefully to this, and he says this, Behold, we have forsaken all. So it's, it's a reflection back on the rich young ruler who hasn't been willing to do that. And Peter is now thinking of the disciples, and more particularly, he's thinking of himself. And he says, Hey, we, we've forsaken all and followed you. That's essentially what you said to the other individual. And, but he takes it in a little different degree. Uh, direction now because what he wants to know is what shall we have therefore? Well, folks, this morning, this gives us an opportunity to talk about a subject that uh, is really a lot more in the New Testament on this than you might think. I got to, to thinking about this. The subject is rewards. Remember, Peter is a disciple. He's already a follower of Christ. He's already made the decision in his life that he's going to leave the former life, and follow Christ, whatever it is that God has for him in his life. So we think of him as a believer. We think of him as a disciple. And he's thinking about, well, if the Christian life involves this discipleship of forsaking and following, is there any reward for this in the next life? And indeed there is. I got to thinking about this. I thought, you know, I need to tell the folks this morning, we're certainly not going to try to, to say everything you can say in the New Testament about rewards. And I got to thinking, boy, if you were to launch into all of that, you could probably preach at least half a dozen messages. And then I got to thinking about more verses. And no, I think you could preach more than any half a dozen verses. So we're not going to try to do a theology of rewards this morning and cover everything that is said in the New Testament in this respect. But what we will be able to do as we get to the main heart section of the message is three, see three things. There are three things that Jesus says in response to this question. We'll get there in a moment. First of all, I want us to think about the question itself. I, I call this a bold question. Did you ever notice that Peter was never one to be shy? <laughs> and when you think about this question, it does kind of come across as a little bold, maybe even a little brash, uh, a little blunt. What shall we have, therefore? Um, you know, it would be sort of like a preacher being invited to speak and saying, well, what's the honorarium? I would never feel comfortable with doing that. I would trust that God would take care of that and that people would certainly understand your needs and expenses and this type of thing. And do you know, I can say this without, uh, maybe two, the only one I'm thinking of, but in all the course of ministry in Huntington and in all the funerals I did during that time, which would be a separate thing, of course, from uh, your normal arrangement with the church, 
And a woman called me on one occasion, and I didn't know her, but I knew the family. And so they sort of were looking to us because the family had some connection with the church. She wanted me to know if I'd do the service. I said, sure, because I would generally do services like that, even for people who weren't directly connected with us at the time. I wouldn't do weddings because that's a lot more involved, and you just don't have the time to, to, to be a marrying Sam. But I looked at I looked at funerals as an opportunity for outreach. So I said, yes, ma'am, I'd be happy to do the service. I went down there and and did all the different things for the service and so forth. And I never heard anything from the funeral director. I never heard anything from her. I think I maybe heard later that she had told the funeral director that she'd take care of it. Well, she never took care of diddly squat. But I think in all those years of ministry, to only be stood up one time like that, that's not a bad testimony, is it, really? God always faithful about that kind of thing. But this is a kind of a bold, brash kind of a question, I think. But we're going to look at it from both sides because there's a way to look at it in a, in a sense that I think will make us feel better and will kind of um, exonerate Peter just a little bit. I don't think it's all that, although it is a little bit of that. Uh, in fact, what we have to realize maybe is that Peter's the kind of person who's not only bold and doesn't mind asking a question, but... There were times in Peter's life when Peter was given to overstatement. And why I reflect on that here is because what he says to the Lord is, Behold, we have forsaken all and have followed thee. I don't know that I'd be willing to quite go that far. You know, I don't know that I'd be willing to self-promote quite to that extent in in my own life. I always figure I have a lot of, of, of room still to grow and still to go, but... Peter put it that way, and there were other times in his life when he made similar statements. Um, If we go over, in fact, to Matthew chapter 26, if you'd like to look at this, you have a couple of examples of this here, and and these are well familiar, but at least it it serves to illustrate the point. Here you have um, uh, the the last night, the Gethsemane, the Last Supper, and the Gethsemane-type experience there, and Jesus says to them um, in verse 31, uh, verse 31, then saith Jesus, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. Did you, do you see the word all? He says all of you. But somehow Peter thinks that that didn't include him. And so he says in verse 33, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. I'd be scared to say that too, wouldn't you? It seems to me like that's a little bit too much confidence in your own spirituality, but it's Peter. And then he says in verse 35, same place, and you know the Lord kind of comes back on him and says, Verily I say unto thee, verse 34, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter doubles down. Next verse, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And then, because, again, Peter was their leader, they all sort of chimed in. Likewise, also said all the disciples. So you almost feel like you've got a little bit of a tinge there of what Paul would later talk about uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, You don't have to turn if you don't want to, but I want to turn myself to get this right because I think this is a, a really valuable verse that sort of touches on what I'm trying to say here. Paul says this in Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, I think that's a really good exhortation that we need to keep in mind. He says, But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So you sort of think to yourself, 
it's just personality. You know, he had a different personality, and, and different isn't necessarily wrong, but you almost kind of get the impression at first blush with this question that there's just a little bit of a, a hint of that, uh, maybe not thinking quite as soberly about himself as he ought to have thought. Okay, so that's the one side of this. But again, let's, let's be fair about the thing. There is, a, there is an element of truth, at least from the way Peter is coming at this thing, even at this stage in his life. Because if you go back to chapter 4, it's true that, that he did forsake his business, his fishing business, and became a follower of Christ. And I think that's really what he was thinking about. I don't think he necessarily meant to be a, a braggart. I think he was just stating what was on his mind at the time. And verse 18 says, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. This is Matthew 4. Saw two brethren, Simon and Peter, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, we understand from the, the account that we read earlier in John's gospel that this, isn't, this doesn't just happen. He's, he's met them before. Jesus has met them before. But this is the time that he's coming to them and actually issuing them a formal call. And uh, it says in verse 19, he saith unto them, follow me, verse 20, and straightway, what does it say? They left their nets, which is forsake, and followed him. So in a sense, I mean, you could see where Peter was coming from. I mean, I think Peter was looking at it. Hey, I mean, I, I, I left my fishing business. You know, God has called me a person to do something like that. Uh, we've had plans and thoughts about our lives, and sometimes we've even been out midstream in life um, and not necessarily had the Lord close those doors. But then uh, God speaks to us, and he has other things in mind, and we become convinced by his Holy Spirit that that's true, and we yield, and, and we change course, and we do the thing that God has uh, required of us. And uh, so I think... Well, on the one hand, there is a sense in which you think to yourself that the question is kind of bold, maybe a little blunt, maybe a little brash. There's a sense also in which it's a natural question, maybe, to, to ask. And if we want to be as absolutely generous as we can and truthful, it's probably one that we could envision thinking even if we didn't say and so, therefore, you kind of think of it along the lines of the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. And so it's, I'm kind of glad he asked the question because if he didn't ask the question, then Jesus wouldn't have made these statements. And this is where we get now kind of the heart of the message and can look at these three things that the Lord responds. So we have a bold question in verse 27. In verses 28 and 29, we have a gracious answer. And I might point out, the reason I say gracious is Jesus doesn't miss a beat. And uh, we're not always as good with that, are we? I mean, sometimes, um, you know, we kind of know people before they're coming. We know they tend to be a little bit this way or that way or however it is. We tend to have them thought out in our minds. And every once in a while, those things begin to irritate us a little bit. And we're not always patient. But the master understands. And it was a great opportunity for him to teach Peter and teach the disciples and teach us. The other disciples are there listening, of course, to this. And so he provides three answers, three points of encouragement. And uh, these I'd like to share with you this morning because I do find them encouraging. I think that um, even if you look in the secular world, there's a sense in which we can understand that rewards can be an incentive. 
And uh, that's why um, sometimes commissions are used in reference to uh, the work that some people do or bonuses. And, and we're not groveling like that, hopefully, in, in our Christian service. We're not doing it for what we can get. But who among us this morning wouldn't say that the thought of Jesus saying at the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant, wouldn't be an incentive, wouldn't be a motivation. It is, folks. It's a high motivation because you don't want the other thing to be said. You don't want to be like that crowd in Corinth that Paul talked about that built with the wood, hay, and stubble and only make it in by the skin of your teeth and be saved, yet so is by fire. We want, as Peter characterized later when he wrote Second Peter, an abundant entrance to be ministered unto us in the sense that we've lived a fruitful life, that God has been able to find us yielded, and he's been able to use us. Uh, to me, that's a goal I have. It's an incentive that I have, and it's meant to be that way. So there's a, there's a positive side to this that it's encouraging. First of all, so here are the three observations or points of encouragement. First of all, rewards are according to his promise. Why do I say this? Because he makes two commitments in response to this. He makes a statement in verse number 28 to the disciples specifically. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve tribes, twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He makes another promise a broader one in verse 29 to all of us. And everyone, see the distinction, and everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Rewards are according to his promise. I mean, we may ask a question or think about something like this, but the Lord's answer and response is... Yes, yes, rewards are definite. And even though the expression, um, sometimes someone dies and we say, well, he's, he or she has gone to his reward, isn't always the greatest expression because sometimes uh, they don't go to their reward, they kind of go to the opposite. And it's just sort of a roundabout way of not having to deal with a harsh reality. There's also a technical point in which uh, we technically don't go to our reward because the bema is not yet. The judgment seat of Christ is not yet. So even though maybe that's not the greatest expression in the world, there is certainly a lot of truth. Um, think about different things Jesus said, promises he gave. Uh, if you're in Matthew 19, just drop back to chapter 10 for a moment. Could I show you this one? This is, again, you'll find a ton of this stuff if you go looking for it. But verse 42, this is the Lord speaking, and he's sending these guys out on a preaching tour. And he's talking about being a disciple. And he says, And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. I like that. That's a promise because you can tell the motives right. There's no mixed motive here. You're giving it in the name of, the, of a disciple. That's what he says. And he says a person like that is not going to lose his reward. That's a promise. 
And we could talk about a lot of those, except we're going to just skip over them all and come to the very end if you want to do this. It's easy just to keep your fingers here and go to Revelation 22. Kind of interesting to see what what are, are some of the final things that the Lord talks about. And in verse 12, he says this, And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. Well, that would be, he's speaking about the, the bema there that's going to take place. But, uh, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. So rewards are, they're definite. My point is they are definite, they are real. The Bible teaches it. Jesus made promises about it. And it's something that we can legitimately if we've lived a life that honors him, look forward to, and that should be a positive thing for us. That should be a positive motivation for us. Secondly, rewards are according to his determination. In other words, human judgments don't enter into this, and I'm glad for that too. And Paul is talking about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm a little ahead of where I wanted to use this scripture, but it's okay Because it helps make the point, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about this too. And I really like something he says when I I said not according to human judgment. And you think about this church at Corinth. They were loaded with what? Carnal Christians. This was a crowd that didn't have any problem criticizing you. And if you read 1 Corinthians, and then especially if you read 2 Corinthians, they had no problem working Paul over. And you can find that, unfortunately, there's a lot of that out there. That's not good. That's kind of an indictment, really, that so much of that kind of stuff goes on in the church, wagging tongues that doesn't do anybody any good. But in verse 4, Paul says this. uh, Verse 3, let's read it. But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. I, I think about that every time I read that, and I say, boy, he had really grown in grace. He just got to the point where he said, this is like water off a duck's back. I mean, you know, when they told you in school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words or whatever shall never hurt me. Man, did they lie. Words really do hurt. And I'm sure that all of us have been hurt before by careless, critical things that unknowing, unthinking, uncaring Christians have said. That's sad. But Paul said he grew to the place where he realized that it's not important. I mean, it is in the sense that you want to live above reproach, but the fact that people do that, he said, I've grown to the place where he said, it's it's a small thing. I recognize, I consider the source. I recognize what's going on. I recognize that it's just kind of a display of carnality that goes on. And he says, in fact, he says, Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. This is the idea of I don't know anything against myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. And therefore, then he says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time come until the Lord, until the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So God's going to sort all this out. Aren't you glad for that? God sees everything. He knows when the motivation of our heart is maybe not correct. He knows when the the motivation of our heart is precisely correct. 
He sees every tear. He sees every heartache. He knows every unkind thing people have said. He knows every difficult experience we go through. And he's encouraging us by saying, you know, you can't even give something that would seem to be as insignificant as a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in the name of a disciple. But what I don't notice that, and I don't forget. You remember I was talking to you about one of my favorite verses in Hebrews along these lines. Hebrews 6.10 talks about God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Because so often people do forget. I mean, a lot of what happens goes unnoticed. And um, I always tried to thank the, the music folks because um, I would often say to them that, you know, this is kind of the part of the service I can come and, and sit back and look to be ministered to. Um, other parts of the service I have to either take care of myself or certainly when the preaching comes I have to, to do that. But uh, this is part, and I always wanted to encourage them because of the gifts God had given them. But I, I find we don't do enough of that in our church. People do things for us. We don't think to say thank you for them. We don't think to acknowledge them. But God doesn't miss any of it. He's going to sort it all out. It'll be according to his determination. So let's give a couple of examples. Um, for instance, what about the question that the mother of James and John had? Let's go over to Matthew 20. So we just turn a page over. The Lord's been talking about this. He tells a parable in the first part of chapter 20 that sort of develops a point that we haven't gotten to yet. We will, but you get to the end of this, and then it says in verse 20, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children, that's James and John, with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Oh, I don't want much. Just grant that these two, my two sons, may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. A little bold too, wasn't it? I mean, those would be the two highest positions of honor, right? And again, the patient master. Jesus answered and said, "Ye know not what ye ask. And then he gets down to verse 23 and develops that a bit more. Ye, he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. By the way, I think James and John sort of put her up to this. I think they heard Peter's question and were kind of interested in their own behalf. But so he's talking to them actually now more than her. You shall indeed be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my, look at this, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given for them of whom it is prepared of my father. In other words, God knows what's appropriate. God knows what we've done. God knows what place of service we've occupied, what place he's put us in his kingdom. He knows what reward is appropriate for us. So in our text... This is what verse 28 is all about. Um, there's only 12 apostles. I mean, in the sense of the, of the divine number. So, you know, we can talk all day long about, is Paul the 12th or was it Matthias? You'll never solve that. But in verse 28, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you. So here's the encouragement. Here's the promise. Here's, here's showing us that the reward is also according to his determination that ye which have followed me in the generation when the son of man regeneration when the son of man shall sit on the throne of his glory ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel what's that tell you right now you're not on one of those right unless you figure on asking peter or james and john to step down 
But that, I, I can say with all honesty today that doesn't bother me a bit because I don't think I deserve to be on one of those. If the Lord called on them and, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, if, if they are foundational, if they were his original disciples, if in his infinite sovereign wisdom he knows that that's the appropriate reward for what he called them to do, I'm just fine with that. But it's not like you and I won't have a part. And what part we have may not be quite that part, but turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and this will blow you away. Now Paul's got to deal with this carnal crowd and they're bickering in the church and one of them's taking another one to court and all that kind of stuff because they can't get along. And he says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? So I might not be on one of the 12 thrones, but they'll be a part. It says it right here. I don't understand that. I can't tell you what all that is, but I read it. And I figure if, if he told the Corinthians, I at least got a shot. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world should be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And then he hits them with another one. Look at this. If you thought the first one was something, what about this? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Wow. Boy, I tell you, folks, there's some fantastic things out there. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. So there, according to his determination, human judgments are not going to enter into the process at all. And I'm glad for that, really, because the Lord is only the one who knows. And I think it gives us the opportunity to make maybe another sort of devotional application, and that is this, be prepared for a lot of surprises. I think there are going to be a lot of surprises. I think that some of the things that maybe we thought were our best accomplishments might be lower rated than some of those other things that, I don't know. I just know that since he knows, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises, and there's a lot of things that you can talk about here um, for example, what about if you turn the page? Because, he, like I said, he told this parable. Now, you want an illustration of surprises. It's the parable of, parable of the laborers in the vineyards. So the guy's got grapes or whatever, and it, you need to get these things in so they don't spoil. So got to pick them and stomp on them and get the juice and all that stuff. So it, he wanted people to help. So he goes out in the early morning. If you think about a 12-hour day, which we don't ever do anymore, mostly. But anyway, uh, you think about that. So he goes out there and hires the first crew at six o'clock in the morning, but he still has work to do, still has more room. So then he goes out at nine o'clock, third hour, hires some additional ones that he finds standing around not doing anything. And he didn't tell, doesn't tell them what he's going to give them, just says whatsoever's right. The other guys that he hired in the beginning, uh, your pay is the denarius. It's a laboring man's wage for the day, a penny for the day, it says in verse 2. Catches these guys at 9 o'clock. Verse 5 says he goes out at, six, at noon, the sixth hour, and he finds more. And then he finally, he must have had a, quite a need. And he went out at the eleventh hour, it says in verse 6, and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye idle all the day? No man hath hired us. Well, go to the vineyard, work in my vineyard, I've got work, and whatsoever is right, that shall you receive. Well, when the end of the day came, then he kind of 
handled it in a way that was a bit surprising. He called the guys that only worked an hour in first and went down until finally he got to the guys that had worked all day, but he paid them all the same thing. And then when he got to the guys that had worked all day, they were when they saw that they were not going to get more, they complained. They, they thought it was unfair. They, they said, hey, we, we've borne the burden and heat of the day. What's this? Verse 13, friend, I do thee no wrong. Did not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do that which I will with mine own? Is thine evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. He picks up on that saying that we haven't gotten to yet. That's a surprise. Do you ever think about that a lot? What about latecomers to the game? Or what about people that died young in life? Are they penalized because... What about James, for example? Jesus, he said he could be baptized with the same baptism that Jesus was baptized with, and he was. He was the first apostle to be martyred. We talked about that recently. Acts chapter 12 gives us that story. So James didn't get to live out the full life of service that Peter did. He certainly didn't get to live out the full life of service that John did because John wasn't martyred. John lived out all his days, albeit in exile, but he did. He, Paul was a late comer to the game. Paul wasn't one of the original 12. And even though he was given the privilege of having a, a full life from that point of service forward, did you ever think about that very much? Did you ever think about the fact that you and I are probably 11th hour laborers? I'm hoping that's the case. I'm hoping it's late in the day. I'm hoping that it's late in the church age and Jesus is soon to come. Amen. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that, but I think there's a lot of reason to be encouraged just because I'm an 11th hour laborer doesn't mean I'm going to be penalized. It wasn't my fault that I wasn't born until 1954. I'm not held accountable for what Paul's task was. He's not held accountable for what mine was. I'm sure I don't measure up, but I'm just held accountable for where I am and what God has called me to do. And I'm glad to know that I'm not penalized because I'm a latecomer to the game. Now, I don't, I'm not standing in line to die young. I guess that won't happen because I can't really claim to be young anymore. I don't claim to be old either. But I guess I've made it to the point where I can't really claim I'm young any longer. So I'm, I'm glad that that isn't going to happen. I don't know how many years of service the Lord still has for me. I don't know any of that. Um, but I do know that the Lord promises to uh, reward us, and I'm glad I'm not penalized for that. And I, I was thinking about um, a rabbi. Uh, there's a story in the Talmud about um, the whole question of there was a rabbi, and he died when he was 28, so young. And the rabbi who told the story was telling this as a, as a means of trying to comfort um, the people uh, in the family and those who had known and the ministry of the young rabbi who had died. So he told a story. It's kind of interesting how it's so very similar to the one Jesus told. He, he talked about, he said, a certain king went out and... Uh, he hired people to work for him, and he watched them work. And um, after about two hours, he, he noticed a guy who had been a particularly diligent 
uh, industrious worker, and he called him aside. After about two hours of work, he called him aside, and he said, walk with me. And they walked together, and uh, after they talked for a little while, um, he sent him on his way and paid him as much as he paid the other guys that worked the whole day. When they complained, he said, well, this man has done two more in two hours than you've done the whole day. And how he likened that to the rabbi was that died young, he says, so it's just so with the rabbi who died young. He said he knew more about the law at 28 than most of you will know when you're 100. Well, God knows all that. And these rewards, they are not only according to his promise, but they are according to his determination and human judgments won't have anything to do with it I like the way Helen Keller put it when she said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. That's something to live by. There's a lot of truth in that. The third observation is this. The third encouragement is these rewards will be available to all. And this takes us to verse 29. And in verse 29, you'll notice that he broadens it out. There's only 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But he says here in verse 29, and everyone that hath forsaken. So there are many people. The 12 were not just the only ones who have forsaken to follow. People do that all the time. It's a shame more don't do it, but you know people do it all the time. People go to serve the Lord on the mission fields. People turn up lucrative, turn down lucrative careers in life in order to take a much lesser paying position. Christian school teachers do that all the time. They could earn double in the public sector what they earn teaching for a Christian school, but they want to be in the Lord's service. It happens all the time. And the Lord wants us to be encouraged too and to know that everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold. Now, you might kind of look at that and think to yourself, well, I'm not sure I've really seen that accomplished. Well, here's something we have to realize. And then you'll notice that after he says that, he says, and shall and shall inherit eternal life. So when are you going to receive this hundredfold? Did you know you don't have to wait until the Bema? I mean, you'll have to wait until the Bema for all the final determinations to be made, but you won't have to wait until the Bema to be rewarded for your service. Did you know that? There are rewards that, are, that come in this life. And the Lord develops this. If you look at the, a little comparison here, keep your fingers, but turn to Mark 10, because... We're looking at Matthew 19 this morning, but you have a parallel account in Mark 10. You have a parallel account in Luke 18. I choose Matthew because Matthew is the only one that preserves the question for us. But Mark and Luke tell us something that Jesus said that's not emphasized in Matthew's portion. And if you look at verse 29, we'll pick up the familiar verse, Mark 10. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold. What's the next several words say? You got it? Now in this time. 
houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come. So he clarifies that. There's a distinction in in the world to come, eternal life. There are actually rewards in this life. And if you have to, if part of God's plan for your life is to leave your father and mother and go to the mission field, well, he has other people who will fill that role. Fathers and mothers, lots of people sometimes who step up and fill that role. You've seen it, I've seen it. That God never takes something away that we consider to be the normal thing in life. God never takes anything like that away, but what he replaces it with something better. And I like to refer to that as God's compensating richness. And God proves this to us all the time. I look at my life and... I don't know, I had a reason to be talking to somebody the other day about this. I've forgotten exactly who it was. And um, I was talking about the fact that, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't really have, I had no concept of a Christian school. I really didn't because, I mean, we grew up in a nominal denominational church and, and we knew Christian things, but we didn't have preaching. They didn't preach the Bible there. And I didn't know anything about all this kind of stuff. And so when I finally got saved and started going to a Bible-believing church, and they were talking about, well, and it was the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, so I had one year, and I kept mulling all this and praying about this and trying to figure out, well, okay, what am I supposed to do with my life now? And, but they talked at the church. When you'd go, they talked about some of these Christian schools. I'd never heard anything like that before. And everything up until that point in my life, I was interested in, in nuclear and physical and chemical engineering. And so my dad said a, a really smart thing to me one day. He said, son, he said, the praying's good. You need to be doing the praying. But he said, uh, we need to go out here and see some of these places. And, you know, the Lord will maybe use that to speak to you and help you understand all this. So, I mean, I went to Clemson and the guy took me in a laboratory and showed me all this. You know Clemson, right? Okay. So anyway, well, we're a long ways away. I don't want to be sure. And he showed, took me in this laboratory and fascinated me with some of these things. Oh, wow, wow. You know, because I'd always ask for chemistry sets when I was a kid growing up and for Christmas presents and this type of thing. And, and I was, had been accepted at Clemson and I had been accepted at Georgia Tech. But it was all a totally different direction with my life. And banging around somewhere in the back of my mind and heart, there was this thing about, well... I'm a Christian now. What if I'm supposed to do something different? What if I'm supposed to study the Bible? Well, I told you I didn't really know anything about this Christian college or university stuff. So one of the ones they talked about was Bob Jones University. Well, that just happened to be my home state. Believe it or not, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Never heard, I never heard of Bob Jones. They're right up there in the Piedmont and Greenville, but I, I didn't run in any circles to hear about that, and I certainly didn't hear about the pink and blue sidewalks. And so I went there with my dad one time and had an appointment back in those days. I don't know if they still do this or not, but he got me an appointment with the director of admissions. And I went in there and talked to him. And I was still trying to hedge my bets, you know, because I wasn't totally sure. And so I filled the application out for Bob Jones. And they had this question on there about if you're accepted, you're, this is where you're coming. So I left that blank. 
Well, they contacted me and said, you left that question blank. We can't process your application. Oh, wow. Now the fat hit the fire. I have to make a decision. So I went back in the spring on what they call let's get acquainted days. Anybody ever? I don't know if they still do those or not. Well, I went on that campus during those let's get acquainted days. And you, you just went to classes along with other people and, and, and went to chapel, that kind of stuff. You kind of got an idea of what it was like to be there if you would be a student. I'm walking along in these these other kids. They're friendly. Uh, you go to a class. They say, here's my Bible. Look on with me. I go to the chapel. And in those days, all we had was the Rhoda Haver Auditorium. But you're thinking, all we had, it was like 3,000 people in there. And they had people meeting in several other locations on the campus. I went in that place, and they cranked that organ up. And they started singing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. I never heard anything like that in all my life. And I walked out of that place and said, I gotta be here. I gotta be here. My point is, I've never looked back. I've never thought very much about chemical engineering again or nuclear physics. Well, I still am interested, but I don't spend any time on it. It doesn't worry me that I miss that. It doesn't worry me that I miss that paycheck. It doesn't bother me Maybe I shouldn't say this, but it doesn't bother me in the least that my oldest son makes more money right now at 30 years old than I'll ever make. He's a software engineer. I'm sure his salary is six figures. It doesn't bother me. I'm glad for him. He can take care of me when I don't have anything. But thirdly, rewards will be available to all, verse 29. And amazingly, we don't have to wait until the beam up. In this present time, if God takes anything away, he always replaces it with something that's more satisfying. Someone put it very well when they said, they that deny themselves for Christ shall enjoy themselves in Christ. And I don't really consider that I've denied myself. I just figure this is what God had, and I don't think about that stuff. You know, I've long told people, you struggle with, this is free, this is a different subject. But I've long told people, you know, you struggle with money. Some people have a real battle with giving. And I've long told people, you know, you struggle with that. It's because you think about it too much. What you need to do is a simple thing. Just make a simple commitment in your mind. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Make up your mind the tithe is the Lord's. And just write the check. When you, when you sit down and you look at your money, and you're going to make a budget, which you should do, just look at that first 10% or whatever, you know, if you're going to give more than that, that's great too. But just figure you don't, you don't even... That's never a part of your calculations as, as far as what's available to you to use. I've always lived my life that way. It's never been a battle to me. If I sat down and thought about it, I might say, wow. I sometimes get my giving statements at the end of the year. I look at those things and I say, holy cow, I gave that much? But I never really think about it. I never really think about what I could have had. if I, I, don't, I don't consider that I've sacrificed, really. So we'll let the Lord sort that out. At the end, and we don't have much time, let me just make a quick comment. There's a sobering reminder in verse 30. 
And Jesus says this. Here's something to really think about. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, there's a lot of ways you can go with that. Let's back up to what was before and think about one application from that. Who was first in this world was the rich young ruler. He had it all. But in the next world, no, not so much. It'll be the opposite. In fact, if you want to think about it, you think about that story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. In this world, the rich man every day fared sumptuously. That beggar, that poor man. They had to carry him to the rich man's gate so that he could hopefully get the crumbs. He didn't have any money for a doctor, just had to settle for his dogs to lick his sores. But the moment this life was over, everything was 180 degrees opposite. That poor beggar who had nothing in this world but who knew the Lord had a heavenly escort to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, the Bible just says, he died and was buried. And when he opened up his eyes, he opened them up to flames and torment. He wasn't rich there, I can tell you that. So there are many, and it's a comfort for us to know this, there are many who are rich in this world who are first here. But it's also an admonition to us because if that's the case, I need to be careful that I live that way. Because even as a Christian, I can get distorted values. I can be like the Corinthians and not take heed how I build on the foundation and use those old shoddy building materials, wood, hay, and stubble. And at the end, they'll just all burn up. I will have suffered loss. And you know, this is the thing about rewards. You can forfeit them. You can lose them. You can lose the prize that God wants to give you. Uh, don't take it from me, take it from John. He says it in 2 John chapter, well, it's all chapter 1, but verse 8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Well, those Corinthians that built with the wood, hay, and stubble, they lost. He says what it says, they'll suffer loss. I was thinking about a story William Booth told, you know, the, the general of the Salvation Army told about a man that had gone to Australia and he had worked in the gold fields there, worked hard, and became very wealthy as a result of his work in the gold fields. Well, he was, an earlier day, he was on a, a vessel uh, returning, uh, having made a great fortune, and the, the ship encountered a storm, a, a violent storm, began to take on water and such as that. They lost the lifeboats, and people on the, on the, on the boat were essentially without hope. But he was strong. I mean, he'd worked in those gold fields, and he really thought they were, they were somewhat close to an island. of. He really felt like he could chuck himself overboard and make that island. And so he prepared to do that, but around his waist, he had a gold belt. But again, he thought he was strong and thought that he could not only make the island, but the money belt wouldn't take him underwater. About that time, just as he was ready to chuck himself over and take his chances and try to swim for that land, a little girl walked up to him. Her mother had been lost in the storm. A little girl walked up to him and she said, Sir, can you save me? Now think about this. A little girl walks up. He's right ready to throw himself overboard. A little girl walks up, Sir, can you save me? He looked from her to his belt. 
He looked back at her. He looked at his belt again. He took the belt off and chucked it. Put the little girl on his back. And he rescued that girl. He barely got to the shore with her on his back. The next day when he regained consciousness, the little girl put her arms around his neck. And with her lips, she kissed his cheek. She said, I'm so glad you saved me. William Booth said that was worth more than all the gold in Australia. He said it's a little bit like the soul winner's reward. For some person you've won, for some person in whose life the Lord has used you, and you meet them one day in heaven on the streets of gold, and they walk up and they say, I'm so glad you preached that sermon or sang that song or gave me that tract. It saved me. God used that. There are many that will be first in this world that will be last in the next, and the reverse is also true. And we need to be careful, beloved, that we think about this. I want to end with a question. Will we have anything? Will you have anything? Crowns to cast at Jesus' feet? Like I told you, there's so much in the Bible on this. Let me close by a reference to this verse. It's in Revelation chapter 4. Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy. These crowns, by the way, are the crowns of reward. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. To me, it's an incentive, the thought of having something to cast at his feet because he is worthy. There's a story told from the 1976 Olympics. There was a Japanese competitor. His name was Sun Fujimoto. And in the, in the run-up to the performance, the day he was going to have the performance, in the run-up to it the day before, he injured, severely injured his knee. Everybody figured he just would have to drop out, that he couldn't compete. He shocked them all because when it came to his strongest event the next day, he chose to participate in that event, and it was the rings. You've seen this before? I can't imagine how these people do this. And he, he got up there, and he, he went through his entire uh, thing with the rings. But everybody knew that the dismount's going to be the thing. And so the audience got real quiet. And when it came time for the dismount, he, without any his hesitation whatsoever, he ended it with a twisting triple somersault dismount and landed right on the floor. And the audience was just like, you could have heard a pin drop. He didn't flinch. And they just roared in applause. Later, though, a reporter interviewed him and asked him about it. He said, how did you do that? He said, the pain shot through me like a knife. He said, it brought tears to my eyes. But he said, now I have a gold medal and the pain is gone. And I think about this. Paul used that exact thought in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, and they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we 
and incorruptible. O God in heaven, we are just amazed beyond any ability to fathom or think what lies in store. We give our hearts to Jesus, first of all, when we're saved. And then, Lord, if we yield to him with our lives and follow his will and plan, to think that this will bring honor and glory to you, to think that it may even result in others being in the kingdom, to think that we will have the opportunity to take those rewards that you may see fit to give us and cast them back at your feet, something to acknowledge how great you are, how worthy you are. May that be a motivation to us today, not to worry about being first in this life as the world thinks of it, but to think about your values and to think about doing your will, knowing that you'll take care of all that. You can, you can and do reward us far more richly than any paycheck could ever be, than any promotion could ever be, than any success in life could ever be. Help us to believe that in our hearts and live our lives in the light of that truth. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Anybody here this morning would say, Pastor, I know the Lord, but I'm not sure I've really given myself so much to thinking about living faithfully for Jesus. And I don't want to get to that place and not be able to hear him say, you did well. You did well. Or for him to have some reward or for him to show me that I've suffered loss because I lived for myself in this world and not for him. I need to pray about getting back on a different track in my life. Would you remember me in prayer this morning? Well, I'd be delighted to, but I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name. But I think it's important if the Holy Spirit might be speaking to your heart for you to have a moment while I pray and while we're quiet, just to talk to the Lord, because you can come to a decision right where you are. If you know what God wants you to do and you know maybe how you're fighting shy of that, then just give your heart to him. Anybody here this morning say, Pastor, I'm burdened about this. I want to pray you to pray for me this morning. Just slip your hand up, would you? Anybody, anywhere? Father, thank you for your kindness and love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the Peter question Peter asked and for the way you gave answers that are so encouraging to us and so uh, challenging to us in our lives. Lord, as we conclude our service and go home, I pray that the word of God will follow us, continue to encourage and convict us where we may need that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to find our songbooks here and just sing a couple, three verses here. There's four, but Let's find page 571. I'd like to sing the first stanza.